0: You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hi everyone, welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Mariana Sotomayor, congressional reporter at the Washington Post. As someone who covers the House of Representatives almost every day, I'm very excited to talk to Congressman Tony Gonzalez. He is a Republican from Texas. He's serving his first congressional term In the House of Representatives. And of course, he is also the co chairman of the Congressional Hispanic Conference, which is different than the Congressional Hispanic Caucus. Congressman, thank you so much for joining us this afternoon.
1: No, thank you for having me, Mariana. I look forward to it. We're going to have some fun.
0: Yes, exactly. Like the energy already. Um, You know, before we actually talk about the power of representation, I actually wanted to talk to you about some of the news that we have been covering. I'm sure you've been following. Uh, This past week, which is, of course, on the developments in Ukraine and Russia, you were actually there pretty recently last year. So I wanted to ask you what some of those takeaways were that you think should be applied moving forward and so far what you think the Biden administration has been doing right and maybe things that you would recommend to them to continue to
1: do. Uh, sure. So first off, I spent 20 years in the military, uh, and I retired in 2019. So not not too far, not not too long ago, uh, I was still active duty. I spent five years in Iraq and Afghanistan. So I know what uh, conflict looks like, the good parts, the bad parts, the ugly parts. Uh, my, my expertise is cryptology. I was a cryptologist, so uh, cyber in particular. You know, Last year, I had the opportunity of uh, visiting Ukraine, among other places, Taiwan, South Korea, and some other places as well. But Ukraine in particular, there was a couple of takeaways for me. One, it was the fact uh, I met with all different types of people, You know, leadership in the government, the embassy folks. Uh, also, I met with uh, veterans of the 2014 Ukrainian-Russian War. And the takeaway I got specifically from those veterans was they were ready to fight. They weren't going to shy away from a fight. Uh, what they also the takeaway was they didn't want to fight. You know they were basically farmers and and uh, you know one guy in particular was wearing a Nirvana shirt. You know and he goes, look man, I don't want war. I, this is the last thing. He's a doc. He's a doctor uh, or he's a nurse. A field a field medic. And he goes, the last thing I want is war. But you know what? If Russia comes uh, come looking for a fight, we're not going to shy away from one. the The other takeaway that I got was. It wasn't a matter of if; it was a matter of when. And they were asking then, just as they're asking now, where is the United States going to be? Uh, a couple, of, a couple of takeaways for the administration. I think it's it's a positive uh, uh, measure that they sent some uh, some weaponry to uh, to Ukraine. I think that's great. We need to do more of that. Uh, I think that's that's good that the president is is going down that route. I would also say we need to turn instead of just rhetoric. There has to be actions. And one thing in particular I think that we haven't used is cyber. And this is an instrument in our toolbox that we can use to deter the Russians before there's a kinetic response. So instead of sending tanks and troops and and aircraft carriers and planes, you know, why not uh, flip a switch and maybe turn off some some oil pumps in Russia and just go, look, this is a small taste of what could happen if you go into Ukraine. These are a few options I think uh, that the president should consider.
0: You know, you mentioned cyber, and it's something that doesn't necessarily come to mind when you first mention war or tensions with another foreign country, right? We think of all those physical things you mentioned, airplane carriers, tanks, that kind of warfare. Um, but cyber is very important. And, you know, DHS is actually warning, I'm sure you know this, that, that Russia could retaliate against the U.S. Um, through cyber warfare in some certain way, besides what you're already saying about how the U.S. should take actions now against Russia. How should we protect ourselves from potential hacks, potential uh, cyber attacks by Russia?
1: Yeah, uh, you know, I spent 20 years in the intelligence uh, community. It's what I've done my entire adult life. What I can say is the United States has the best defenses when it comes to cyber. Now, defense is very tough because to, you have to get it right every single time, and in cyber in particular, it's impossible to do. But don't think for a second the United States doesn't have top cyber defenses. What I also say is the United States has top offensive offenses and their uh, uh, capabilities, and there isn't a close second. Uh, one thing that we haven't, we haven't seen more is using our offensive tools as a means for deterrence. And I think that's important. As far as being back home, you know, funny enough, you mentioned it. I literally visited uh, the San Antonio water system yesterday, the SAWS. It's where we get our local water. And we were, going, we were going through everything. And one of the things I brought up was cyber. And I go, look, you know, why is Ukraine important to the people of my district? It's important because if a conflict comes, it, it, it comes back home in the form of cyber. And what happens when somebody turns the water off? What happens when somebody turns electricity off? Kind of similar, uh, I, I, I often relate to uh, the winter storm that Texas had in February. It didn't matter how much money you had, didn't matter how wealthy you were, didn't matter if you were in an urban city or a, a rural community, everybody was without power and water, some cases food. These are the type of things we need to prepare for. I also think it, it there's no there should not be a divide. It shouldn't be a Republican, Democrat, liberal, conservative. We should all be circling behind, strengthening ourselves for for future cyber attacks.
0: It's actually a good point that you mentioned that a couple of my colleagues and I have been reporting out about the appetite out in the public and also between Democrats and Republicans about foreign engagement of any kind. It's there isn't much of an appetite out in the public to to do that. And. I I actually want to hear more from you about how you kind of bring it or at least inform your own constituents about how real things can get um, at home. Make it in a way for them to understand that we should be engaged in some form or at least paying attention to what's happening um, between our allies and adversaries.
1: Yeah, you're exactly right. And, you know, I'd argue most people don't know where Ukraine is. Most people will go, why is Ukraine important to to my everyday life? So you really have to bring it back. And in the cyber world, you know, there are no boundaries that, you know, everybody is operating in the same space. And we've seen small snippets of this from, you know, the oil pipeline that got hacked earlier this year. You've seen it in schools you know, in San Antonio, we've had some some school systems hacked. Uh, Pensacola, Florida, had their water system hacked. You've seen it in, in our food production areas. This is only a taste of what is to come. Uh, you know, I, one of the things that I'm very proud of last year is I was able to pass three bills. One of those bills was the National Digital Reserve Act, and uh, it passed through the NDAA. NDAA had over 800 amendments, and that particular bill was the second most uh, bipartisan bill we had over uh, 40 different co-sponsors you know i had i had democrats from all over the spectrum you know extremely liberal moderates i had republicans all over the spectrum so i think this is an opportunity to help bring our country back together but we got to start acting now we can't think as if this is a you know in the way in the future and is never going to occur it's here and it's here right now we have to prepare ourselves for it
0: you know, one other way that the government can try and put pressure of, of, on other governments is, you know, probably sanctioning Russia. Um, and I know Biden yesterday said that he likely will put more sanctions, um, not just towards the government, but probably in things that Putin himself is also very much interested in. Is that the right course of action? Is is there anything more that you recommend that the administration should do?
1: You know, I think it is a good first step. You know, I'll go back to it. I spent five years Uh, fighting in Iraq and Afghanistan. I was in the service for 20 years. 18 of that was at war. I've seen war firsthand. Look, I I love to fight, uh, but I hate war. I mean, war is ugly. There are no winners from war, only losers. So anytime you can get ahead of a conflict, I think that's true leadership, right? And using the other instruments that we have in our toolbox. Yes, we have a strong military and and yes it should be used but using the other instruments in our toolbox before it gets to that point i think is so critical we talked about cyber but you to your point on the the financial piece the sanctions piece that's critical but let's do it on the front end start really enforcing some of these things it can't just be open rhetoric it can't just be don't do this or else there has to be some teeth behind it especially for an actor like putin who who is very aggressive and that that uh you know kind of uh, determines his calculations off of that. Let's do a little more forward leaning on that. I wish the president president, would do that. That way we don't have to go down the traditional send troops and and, and uh, weaponry. Like I said, war is ugly. Everybody's a loser if it comes to that.
0: I actually want to shift gears now to talk about the power of minority representation in the hallways of Capitol Hill. Of course, with every uh, congressional term, we're actually seeing more and more people who look like us who do represent the country and given your position as the co-chairman of the Republican conference, you know, we talk about the Hispanic caucus a lot because Democrats are in the majority, but Republicans are eyeing taking back the majority in the House. I want to talk about, you know, the, the goals that you all have currently and especially now that you're thinking about the fact that you all could be very influ- influential next year.
1: I'm very excited about the uh, direction that the Congressional Hispanic Conference is headed into. You know, this is something that isn't new. You know, it's been around uh, for for a very long a couple of decades. You know, uh, we're coming up on our 20 year anniversary here. But it's one of those things that it's the the organization is only as strong as the people within it. And, uh, you know, uh, Mario Diaz-Balart is the is the. Uh, is the chairman, and uh, him and I get along fantastic. He's out of the Miami area. And I went to Mario, and I go, look, man, I'm here to work. I'm here to, to help push this, direction, uh, this country in a positive direction. And I think Hispanics need to have a larger uh, voice in that, need to have a seat at the table, especially uh, Republicans. So we talked about doing this. And, you know, Mario is – the, the one thing about Hispanics is there, there is no one-size-fits-all. We come in, in different shapes and sizes. We have different backgrounds. You know, Mario's Cuban American, and the Cuban American community has been you know heavily represented uh, in the Republican uh, conference for a very long time. I'm Mexican American. You know, and I, I'm from San Antonio. I represent San Antonio to El Paso. You know, in Texas, there are 23 Republicans in the Congressional House. Of that, 22 are Caucasian, and then there's Tony Gonzalez. Like, that's a problem. We have to continue to grow this conference uh, and have the representation that reflects as such if we're going to succeed long term.
0: You know, it's interesting you point out just the dynamics that stark contrast um, that you are really the only voice um, representing not just your community but the backgrounds that we share. i'm I'm curious to know, you know, Republicans, uh, especially on Capitol Hill, I should actually say it's not just Republicans. It's Democrats and Republicans. When talking about, Immigration, for example, it has just become extremely politically toxic. It is somewhere where there's so much inflammatory rhetoric that it is yes. hard to see and, and bridge divides, even though they exist. Curious to know if if you've been talking to House leadership again now that you're possibly eyeing being in the majority, how they should be talking about this, not to alienate, um, you know, especially Mexican American voters, um, and Hispanic voters, of course. And also be able to bridge some of those divides after years of democrats and republicans saying immigration reforms are coming or you know um, we're going to address all those uh, racial disparities through economics which of course is an issue that is definitely at the forefront of many hispanic voters minds
1: yeah no i've been very fortunate that uh leader kevin mccarthy has uh, given me the opportunity to to really lead on this issue you know one my district is over 70 percent hispanic Two, I represent 42% of the southern border. That's 820 miles. I'm literally on the border every single day. So when we start talking about uh, the crisis that is occurring, you know, nobody, nobody has been on the border more, or, or their constituency knows about it more than I. And, and this is what this is. And, and the other thing too is I've I've hosted 41 members of Congress at the border. And what I tell every member of Congress is this is look, you can be hawkish on the border, you can be completely for border security, all in on ensuring terrorists don't enter our country, all in on ensuring uh, drugs, fentanyl, you know, all these terrible things don't happen. These bad actors, we should be all in on preventing that. And in the same breath, the Republican Party can be all in on legal immigration on welcoming those that want to come and live the American dream. This is America. It's the greatest country on earth. Sometimes we forget that because there's all this division. But we have to remember, look, race may make us different, but it shouldn't divide us. And and that's what I tell all my colleagues. And I think, you know, politically, Republicans can lead on this effort. If we can find a manner and a messenger to deliver it and deliver it in a way that goes, wait a second here, we are the party for legal immigration. Now, let's find some ways to reform the legal immigration system. I think that the country is is ready for it. I think the the Republican Party uh, is ready to lead on it. Uh, But but that starts legal immigration or immigration reform starts with border security because things are bad. They're as bad as they've ever been.
0: I'm curious if you all have been talking to the Democratic Hispanic Caucus um, and talking to them about potential pathways because, you know, the Senate tried to talk in a bipartisan fashion, kind of saying what you you were suggesting, you know, put some money, a lot more security at the border, but also possibly provide pathway to citizenship on, on DACA and farm workers, which are two bills, for example, that did receive bipartisan support in the House last year. What is the pathway forward realistically, again, given the fact that there's just they've tried and tried? How are you all going to try differently?
1: You know, I've never served in public office before. I I did 20 years in the Navy. I retired as a master chief and I jumped right in uh, to politics. This is my first time serving in public office. And, you know, in the military, you work with all different types of people from all different walks of life, and you don't ask them, you know, uh, who do they go to bed with? What color their skin? Where are they from? You know, who do they pray to? That, that doesn't matter. What matters is, hey, are you going to help me accomplish this mission? And then I get up to Washington and it is as partisan as can be. I mean, it is a system that is not built to really work with the other side. It's a system to go, the majority body leads and I completely get that. So what I've learned is you have to go out of your way in order to build these relationships. It's not a natural thing. And that's what I've done honestly this first year and I will continue to do it this next year in office is find relationships, find people that wanna work together to solve our nation's problems. And we've done that, you know, I won't get into specifics, but I went to a dinner and uh, with eight other Democrats. I'm looking. I'm, I'm literally the only Republican in the room, and I'm sitting in this dinner. And 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 I think we just need to do more of this conversating. Like we got to get out of our corners and start tackling the issues. What I would say is this: For too long, Congress has punted to the executive branch. Right. A prime example. You know, let's blame Biden for everything that's wrong, or let's blame Trump for everything that's wrong. I think it's time for Congress to lead again. Congress needs to take an active role. We're an equal body of government. The legislative branch has to come together, roll up our sleeves and find solutions to these problems. Immigration reform is just one of them, but it takes some leadership and it takes some people willing to push back against, you know, these rhetoric uh, positions that are out there and go, you know what? We have to solve this because it's the right thing to do.
0: I actually want to talk about the Latino vote. You know, one of the big takeaways from the 2020 election was the surprise that many Democrats had that they were losing a majority of Hispanic voters that did previously turn out for them, especially in that Southern Florida region that you mentioned and also in your district, um, in in Southern Texas as well. well. Um, You know, I've also been covering the Hispanic vote for a couple of years and you can talk to, and I'm sure you know this, Republican and Democratic operatives who have been studying the vote for a long time. And always, 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 they say, you just have to show up. I was actually pretty struck by, um, you know, reading your bio. You put in, I think, 7,000 miles into your car when you were campaigning. 70,000. 70, my goodness. Well, your district is pretty big. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it's it, it's it's almost as simple as that, right? Um, I want to talk to you and get your insight on, Republican strategy, but also broadly, what Hispanic voters want?
1: Yeah, I think it's pretty simple. Uh, You're absolutely spot on. Showing up matters, right? Showing up is 90% of life. So you have to show up and you can't just show up two weeks before the election and tell people how bad the other side is, you know, that you should be a Republican. That's not the answer. You have to show up early and you you have to show up often. You know, I put 70,000 miles on my pickup truck and we had big crowds and we had small crowds and I met with people in their living rooms. You know, Texas 23 reminds me a lot of uh, New Hampshire and, and Iowa, you know, that they expect to see their representative. They expect to talk to them, ask them tough questions. And that's what we did. The other thing that I would say is the messenger matters. You know, look, I'm Mexican-American. Uh, my background, I've lived on my own since I was 15. I dropped out of high school at 18. I joined the Navy without a high school diploma. I go on, I get my high school diploma in service, associates, bachelors, masters, uh, and, I'm, and I'm working on my PhD. Uh, you know, I have six children. I'm Catholic. I'm a military veteran. Like all these things matter to a community that you represent. So, you know, when I show up and I start talking about, uh, you know, co- uh, conservative values uh, it, it, it's, it's as if I'm already at the 50 yard line. That's why I think it's so important that the Republican grow, the Republican Party grow and look for candidates like Monica Dela Cruz in Texas 15, like uh, Juan Sisamani uh, in uh, Arizona 6, you know, people that are going to be good leaders. You know, we can't have crazy people. I don't care the color of your skin. If you're crazy, I don't want you in Washington. But we have to have good leaders that are willing to represent our conservative values.
0: I think one of the things, too, that surprised many people from the election was the fact that, you know, the former president, President Donald Trump, was pretty heated with his rhetoric, to put it lightly. Um, when it came to Mexican American relations, you, of course, represent a district right at the border, um, but people still turned out for him. Uh, what do you think the takeaways are for the Republican Party on that? especially since you're seeing a, a bit of alienation with that kind of rhetoric?
1: Yeah, I think, honestly, it started with the Democratic Party really taking a hard left turn and really focusing on some of these social uh, um, agenda items. You know, they went really anti-police. That's not a, a traditional Mexican-American trait. A lot of Mexican-Americans serve in, in military service or or in you know, their sheriffs or their police officers or their brothers are, you know, it's a very uh, service oriented community. So when you attack the law enforcement, you're really undermining that, you know, and, the, and then the social programs, you know, one of the, th- the interesting things when the pandemic hit, you know, my district was uh, one of uh, one of the, the lowest districts to uh, to apply for unemployment benefits. And we're not a wealthy district. So I'm thinking, why why aren't, my, why aren't people applying for unemployment benefits? And as I went around and talked to people, one thing in particular, I talked to this small business owner and she's struggling. You know, this was early in the pandemic. Things were closed down. I stop in to have lunch and I start talking to her about PPP loans. I'm like, hey, why aren't you taking this? She goes, she goes, uh, she goes, mijo, I don't want anything. I don't want anything for the government. I just want to be, uh, just want to stay open. I go, you don't understand the government is the reason why your doors are closed right now. Take the loans to keep your business open. My takeaway was this, and I'm generalizing right now, but the Mexican community isn't a community that has their handout. They're a community that's willing to take a second or third job, that wants to have dignity in work, that wants, to, wants their children to, to have a better life than they are, but they want to work for it. And this is something I think the Democratic Party has missed. And uh, same thing along the border. I mean, when, when you just pretend it doesn't exist, it's bad. It really is bad. Uh, and you have to at least put some effort into it. Uh, it's a problem that every presidency has had to deal with. But for whatever reason, this presidency has not dealt with it in a manner that uh, is, pro- is productive. And the people on the ground, the Hispanic community on the ground, they see that and they're, they're looking for change
0: want to switch gears a little bit you know talk a little bit about other things that are part of the legislative agenda and, and topics of conversation one of them of course is voting rights um, when we're talking about race Democrats especially talk about how a lot of these voting laws are likely going to suppress minority voters um, some of those laws we're seeing it in Texas I want to get your take on that um, and and how do you talk to your own community when they're asking about hey how can I you know, make sure my own vote is, is counted in the next election?
1: You know, this is an area that I think is extremely dangerous. And, and let me explain. Uh, you know, both sides have used this rhetoric of attacking our election system. And I think there is nothing more dangerous that, than that. You know, it's one thing if your horse doesn't win. You know, people can go, you know what, we didn't win this time, but we're going to push hard and we're going to win next time. But it's another thing when people do not believe in the election process. If they don't think their vote is counted, it's going to get ugly. So we can't have both sides trying to uh, have political gains off of this and start undermining our institutions. That's the worst thing that could possibly happen to this country. You know, I look at our adversaries. uh, Once again, you know, my national experience uh, background. You know, Russia will never defeat us. China will never defeat us. America gets defeated from the inside out. And that starts by undermining our institutions. So to your point on voting, this is something, a a conversation we absolutely have to have. And as best we can, it can't be politicized because it's dangerous to our republic. What we should be focusing on is every legal vote needs to be counted one, And it should be counted pretty damn fast. There's no reason why people should be waiting and waiting and waiting and then numbers change. Because what it does is it leaves the impression that somebody is stealing the election in the middle of the night. We have to find a better way of ensuring, one, ensuring every vote is counted. But we got to do it in in a timely process. Otherwise, it undermines things.
0: So in Texas, Governor Abbott, I know, recently passed two laws essentially meant to ban any mention of critical race theory. That is, of course, another topic of conversation when you're when you're talking about schools. Right. How should schools be talking about that?
1: Yeah, you know, I have six children and, uh, you know, my children, you know, we were stationed all over the United States. We went to public schools. We went to private schools. We went to religious schools. We went to homeschools. You name it. Everything under the sun right now. My children, my school age children go to public school. And one of the things is I think you need to be having a relationship with your school system and you need to be having a discussion. Parents, you know, I take my Congress hat off. I'm a father. I'm a father first, you know, and uh, parents should have a seat at the table and should be discussing on this. I think one one takeaway from the pandemic is a lot of parents started seeing what their what their children were being taught. You know, you get very busy, you go in all these different directions, but when they were at home with you and you're going, wait a second, what's going on here? It's just dangerous. So it's something me personally, I believe, uh, you know, the education system should be held at the uh, should be uh, focused at the lowest possible level, at the local level, at the state level. What I don't want to see have uh, happen is the federal government overreach. And people to tell, you know, people from Washington to tell people from Texas what they should be teaching or or other, other places. But parents need to have a seat at the table. That's something that we should all be pushing for.
0: You know, it's been a pretty busy and active year on Capitol Hill, especially yes. for you. It's your freshman and you just completed, I think, your first year with another one to go. Um, you've mentioned a lot of the divisions that exist and the, how difficult it's been to bridge divides sometimes within your own conference. Um, I'm curious just to hear from you, has that impeded, um, you know, any, any goals, any conversations you've been trying to have as you all kind of look at potentially taking back the majority next year?
1: You know, it makes it a little bit difficult. You know, a lot of people in Washington, uh, they grew up in politics You know, they were state reps and they were state senators and or they were their mayors and they were doing things before they were they were members of Congress. You know, for me, I was I was serving our country, so I I don't view the world through a political lens, if you will. And and that's been that's taken some uh, adjustment to realize that, hey, some people, the first thing they look at is how is this going to help me politically? Not is this the right or the wrong thing to do? Uh, But I'll tell you, you know, even though with that, with all these different uh, obstacles, one person can make a difference. It's, you have to work a little harder. You have to build personal relationships. But I would give you an example. This morning, uh, and this is just one example. This morning, you know, I'm going through my different articles. I'm reading different stuff. I see this one thing in particular that catches my eye. And uh, you know, I'm on the Appropriations Committee. My subcommittee is uh, Military Construction and Veteran Affairs. Right. And I see this article in particular. And I reach out to my chairwoman and I I I send her this message and I go, hey, you know, uh, and she's been very forward leaning on making sure that our our uh, soldiers, sailors, airmen and Marines have uh, good housing. Right. Proper housing. And I send her this article and I go, man, I I really wish we could do a little bit more this year on on some of the housing. She texts me right away. She goes, this is a top priority for us. We're absolutely going to hold hearings on some of these different things. And then, and then we just kind of continue the conversation from there. What I'm, what I'm getting at is, yes, we have different ways of doing things. Yes, our philosophical beliefs are very different. But you have to treat people like, treat, like people be respectful of one another, and find ways to work together for the betterment of America. We need more of that, more now more than ever, because there's dangers, real dangers, not only abroad, but here at home. We start tearing each other apart, and, and there's no coming back. We have to heal, and we got to find ways to help, right? Ed, you mentioned education, healthcare, uh, you know, mental health, uh, military. I mean, the list should go sure. on and on and on,
0: well, Congressman, this has been an extremely insightful conversation. To your earlier point, I think we did have fun. I hope I hope you <laughs> did. Um, I could keep asking you so many questions, but I guess I'll have to save them for the hallways of Capitol Hill. Um, I just want to thank you again for coming on and, and informing our viewers about your points of view and how things are going to continue um, in terms of representation um, in, in the Capitol.
1: I love it, Mariana. Thank you again for having me on. Happy to do it anytime. And uh, I'll just say America's best days are ahead of us. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.